There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, Michael Ian Black. I sit on my uh, sofa, a cup of uh, afternoon English breakfast tea at my side as I read uh, this eminently English book. And good news, everybody. Really good news. I hope. I don't know. I hope. Because last time we left Jude, he had just received a package. And this package comes from Christminster. We, it's from his old teacher, Mr. Phillotson. And he thinks and hopes that this package, which he's just gotten, he's hoping this package has in it books where he can learn Greek and Latin. And that's all he wants. All he wants is to, he just wants to learn Greek and Latin. He's so excited um, because he's going to learn Greek and Latin and then get his education and then become Pope. So he's very excited about it. And we think, you know, after all his planning and scheming, maybe things are finally looking up for Jude the Obscure. Perhaps he is now set on his path away from obscurity and towards super stardom. Now look, in the end, we know the book is not called Jude the Superstar. We know that. On the other hand, maybe this moment, maybe he has this moment, maybe he has this moment of books, books for me to learn my thing. So yeah, he's about to open his package. Ever since his first ecstasy or vision of Christminster and its possibilities, Jude had meditated much and curiously on the probable sort of process that was involved in turning the expressions of one language into those of another. So he's like, well, wait a minute. I say subway and then other guys say tube. (laughs) I say apartment and they say flat. He could have a whole 10 minutes on this. You know, Jude, once you figure out your Latin and your Greek, you could get up at an open mic and do just a terrific 10 minutes on the differences between English and Latin and Greek. I mean, uh, some comedians have made their entire careers based on, on stuff like that. Look, I'm not out here trying to give advice to Jude the Obscure. 
But I'm just saying a lot of his problems maybe could have been avoided if he had just given stand-up comedy a try. Now listen, everybody out there who, who, who is a fan of, of, uh, of this podcast and is listening now, you probably have your own problems, right? You probably have well, maybe uh, money problems or maybe you don't like your job or you're in a bad relationship. I'm going to give you the same advice that I would give to Jude. Get into stand-up. You know, that's the best way to, to alleviate whatever problems. You don't like your job? Try stand-up, right? You, you don't have enough money? Stand-up pays a fortune. You're in a bad relationship? End it. Go do stand-up. You never know who you're going to meet at a stand-up club. You know, after the show... You know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, people are a little lubricated. You know, you might you might meet somebody terrific because that's the situation you want to find yourself in. If you're looking for a long term relationship, you want to find yourself in a you in a situation where you're meeting somebody very late at night at a place where they're probably drunk. That generally leads to a long lasting relationship, and and that's what I would have told Jude. Uh. Back to the book. He concluded that a grammar of the required tongue would contain primarily a rule, prescription, or clue of the nature of a secret cipher, which once known would enable him by merely applying it to change at will all words of his own speech into those of the foreign one. So you understand, he thinks that language is going to be like, uh, if you ever saw the movie A Christmas Story, the little orphan Annie, like secret decoder ring, where if you just have the right code, you can turn any word into a word in another language. Yes, 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 yes. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Ovaltine? So, for example, on the walls here at the library, I see a poster for Michael and Michael Have Issues, my long-canceled television project with my dear friend Michael Showalter, who is now so much more successful than me. Uh, so if I had the the correct decoder ring and I wanted to change, let's say, Michael and Michael Have Issues into Latin or Greek, I would just apply the decoder ring and then it would say, Michael and Michael... And then, and then the Latin phrase, which I don't know. But if I wanted to do it in Greek, I would say Michael and Michael. And then in Greek, instead of the have issues, it would be, I would just apply the decoder ring and it comes up. Uh, I don't, I don't know what it would come up. I could, I could probably Google it, but I don't have, that's what Jude needed. Jude just needed Google. And with that, we'll pause a moment. This is obscure. There is no better way to celebrate July 4th and independence in general than with a premium foam mattress designed, assembled, and manufactured in the U.S. of A. I know I feel like hiding under the covers a lot lately. Luckily, my Lisa mattress makes that really easy. I sleep soundly despite everything going on because it's a comfortable mattress and ambient. And I know a mattress is a mattress, right? That's what you're thinking. But until you sleep on a superior mattress 
one that has been tested for all body shapes and styles, a Lisa mattress. Friends, you are cheating yourself. Little aches and pains that you've learned to live with suddenly disappear. You sleep better. You wake up rested. You decide you know what? The world isn't so horrible. And by you, I probably mean me. I hope I mean me. And if that isn't enough, Lisa wants to do good in the world. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. And Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell and are committed to planting 1 million trees by 2025. Hurry, the Lisa July 4th mattress sale won't last long. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash obscure today. That is Lisa. L E E S A dot com slash obscure for one hundred sixty dollars off Lisa, a better place to sleep. Back now on Obscure, and we're on chapter four. Uh, but before we go on, I'm going to give my friend a call. It's my old dear friend, Michael Showalter. I mentioned that I'm in the library and hanging on my wall right now in the Joe Schwartz Memorial Library, a poster from our old TV show, Michael and Michael Have Issues. And we were on the state. We did Wet Hot American Summer and Stella and a million things. Uh, And if you follow his career as I do, then you know that he is now a very successful Hollywood screenwriter and director the big slick and he did hello my name is doors with sally field have you heard of her people like her they really like her but he's also really good at chess he's better than me at chess and i never said that i'm a good chess player but you know we were talking about like doing things that uh that may be uh beyond you you know things that may be difficult things that may be beyond your ken and we also have a friend named ken that's a different kind of Ken. Anyway, so I thought, you know, I'll call him up and, and ask him about that. Uh, not about Ken, but about, you know, doing hard stuff. So, Michael, first of all, hello. Hey, Michael. Uh, thank you for talking to me. And, and, and here's what I'm talking about with Jude right. the Obscure. And I know you're, I know you're a Jude expert. Uh, oh, you, yeah. you told me in a text message that obviously you had read it several times. And so I was hoping to get some more sort of uh, textural detail. Well, I actually, what I actually meant was that I Googled it. I Googled it last night after you told me about it. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. So I, kn- I, knew, I do know a little bit about it now. But so you, I didn't know anything about it before. Okay, but I just want to be clear because you had told me in the text messages that you had read it several times. I lied. That was uh, a lie. Okay. Okay. Me, that was me lying. I see now. Yeah, I've that. I never read it. I I've see. Never read it. That actually makes perfect sense to me now because I think when I said I'm reading Jude the Obscure, I think the first response was, "What's that?" And then. No, I don't think so. Well, I'm gonna look at it. I'm gonna look at it right now. Um, oh, we might have been. Oh, it's a show where I read it. No, so you said it's a show where I literally read the book Jude the Obscure and comment on it. And I said, so what do I do? All right. Well, here's my question. Jude is going through a tough time. I think part of him like just like wants to chuck it all. He's he he wants to go to school and learn Greek and Latin and and become a whole uh, muckety muck. And it reminded me of the time. When you and I started playing 
chess kind of seriously. You may have already been playing chess more seriously than I was, but I remember that I started playing chess uh, and you were playing chess. And I got to a point where I was like, this is impossible because I'm never going to be as good as I want to be. Therefore, fuck it. I'm not going to do it at all. And I was wondering if you ever felt like that. And I, my answer is no. My feeling about it is that my feeling about it is, is that with something like chess, or I might use tennis as an example, I don't need to be the best at it, but I need to be proficient at it. And so I will stay with something in order to get proficient. But doesn't your feeling of like what constitutes proficiency rise as you get better? Yes, although there, then there's a point at which you then I, then you take another measurement of am I willing to do I need to then it's do I need to get to that level and then it's about um, enjoyment. So for ch- for me with chess or tennis. There's a feeling that like I have to have a certain level of proficiency in order to feel like that's I'm chasing a certain level of proficiency, and then then I enjoy it. I actually played chess with a friend um, just the other day. We played a whole bunch of of games of chess, and we had a blast. Uh, was it somebody famous? No. Then I'm not. Then, then I'm not interested. I'm not interested. It was then. my friend Stieg. You know Stieg. Oh yeah, I've met Stieg. Yeah. Michael li- Michael grew up in Princeton and so all his friends are named Stieg. Yeah. I felt like your level of proficiency when we first started playing was what what would make you happy when we first started playing was that you were just good enough to beat me consistently. That's what it felt like to me. That you you that's what that's what gave you great pleasure. And maybe just no, as not at all. Not at all. I got it all wrong. I remember you got it all wrong. I mean not about beating you. I feel like you beat me a bunch too. To me, proficiency is it's it's really like to understand what's happening in the, on the on the chessboard. To take right. out of it, to eliminate from it, not understanding what's going on. So when I think when you first start playing chess, you're literally you're kind of looking at something that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. You you know the basic moves that are available to you, and you understand that. The strategy is to capture the other person's king, but you also understand that there's something greater going on. There's a certain three-dimensionality to it, and I think for me, what I love about it and still love about it is to is to see the board in three dimension. And so I don't need to be better than another person or to win to get enjoyment from that. I know when I sit and down and I play chess, I know what I'm doing. Right. That enough that is enough for me to feel enjoyment i don't need to be better than somebody i don't need to be the best at it i but i but but there, i gain personal satisfaction out of knowing that i understand how to play chess i guess that's how i feel about poker i guess it's yeah. the same thing exactly exactly being good at something is a goal in and of itself right i was actually talking to my friend Steeg. My friend Steve. Steve. And what we were saying was is that a lot of times in business, he's a businessman, um, a, a huge part of the challenge in business is just to be a good business, just to be good at business. You just like business as a larger concept. And so sometimes 
the actual business itself is secondary to being good at it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you, like it's not that relevant that you're selling Milky Ways as opposed to Reese's peanut butter cups. What's important is, is the, is the, the challenge of selling the Milky Ways. If it was me, I would rather sell Reese's than Milky Way because I think that's a better candy. I agree. But now we're, this is sounding like a different podcast. I don't think so. I really don't think so. This, this is starting to sound a little bit like Mike and Tommy snacks. Well, in this case, it's Mike and Mike discuss snacks, uh, which would be Mams. Mam, Mams. Mike and Mike dis- Mams. Yeah. Mike and Mike talk snacks. Mams. It's all very good. Um, I mean, what I'm saying is all my podcasts are very good, including my, including my podcast with you, which, which you bail, which I feel like you bailed on. I feel like you more or less bailed on that. Um, I don't fault you. you. I don't fault you because you, you have a career, whereas my career now is podcasting. Bailed is such a strong word. Right. Ditched. No, I would say, um, Forfeited. Put on the back burner. <laughs> I put it on the back burner because I needed to have. I needed to start focusing on making ma- making a living so that I could feed my family. So that. And we weren't making a living. I I t- strongly disagree. In fact, in fact, the amount of money I made doing Michael uh, doing topics was zero. Uh huh. What kind of um, money am I making doing the, obscure? Well, um, that, that has been a topic. No, the the pause is I'm embarrassed to tell you that I'm doing this for no money, essentially. Uh, but that I like doing it. I I think that this one in particular is very unique. Uh, thanks. Um, well, Michael, this has been a very good conversation more, more just because I like hearing your voice than anything else. Uh, feelings are, feelings are mutual. Good. I'm glad. And I hope let's, let's bring back uh, topics, man. I think you, you've been hard to pin down. Let's, let's bring it, let's bring it I can't, I'm too busy. I have a, I have a podcast okay. about Jude the obscure. I have, I have a podcast where I interview people yeah. and then I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell the bank not to take my home. Like that takes a lot of time. That takes, that takes a lot of time. All right, Michael. Bye. Bye. Okay, back to the book, chapter four. His childish idea was, in fact, a pushing to the extremity of mathematical precision, what is known everywhere, known as Grimm's Law, an aggrandizement of rough rules to ideal completeness. Thus, he assumed that the words of the required language were always to be found somewhere latent in the words of the given language by those who had the art to uncover them, such art being furnished by the books aforesaid. When, therefore, having noted that the packet bore the postmark of Christminster, he cut the string opened the volumes, and turned to the Latin grammar, which chanced to come uppermost, he could scarcely believe his eyes. The book was an old one, thirty years old, soiled, 
scribbled wantonly over with a strange name in every variety of enmity to the letterpress, and marked at random with dates twenty years earlier than his own day. But this was not the cause of Jude's amazement. He learnt for the first time that there was no law of transmutation, as in his innocence he had supposed. There was in some degree, but the grammarian did not recognize it. But that every word in both Latin and Greek was to be individually committed to memory at the cost of years of plotting. So you can imagine how disappointing that would be to Jude, who is only uh, 10, 10, 10 years old or so. And then he's thinking, oh my God, I have to memorize this shit? And the conjunctions and the tenses and all this stuff like that, that is devastating. So back to the book, Jude said, Jude flung down the books, lay backward along the broad trunk of the elm and was an utterly miserable boy for the space of a quarter of an hour. As he had often done before, he pulled his hat over his face and watched the sun peering insidiously at him through the inter interstices interstices of the straw. This was Latin and Greek then, was it? This grand delusion, the charm he had supposed in store for him was really a labor like that of Israel in Egypt. So he's saying, I mean, I could learn this, but I'd basically have to be a slave to these books for the foreseeable future. What, what else does he have to do? What brains they must have in Christminster and the great schools, he presently thought, to learn words one by one up to tens of thousands. There were no brains in his head equal to this business. And as the little sun rays continued to stream in through his hat at him, he wished he had never seen a book, that he might never see another, that he had never been born. Somebody might have come along that way who would have asked him his trouble and might have cheered him by saying that his notions were further advanced than those of his grammarian. But nobody did come. <laughs> and then it says... Because nobody does. <laughs> and that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, look, we're getting back into the whole allegorical thing. And the idea, I guess, being nobody did come because nobody does. That's right. You, they're, they're, it's, it's, not just, it's not just self-reliance that he's talking about here. He's talking about the entirety of humanity, the entirety of life. Yes, people can come along here and there and give you some uh, inspiration. But ultimately, I think what he's saying here is that there is only one kind of hope that you can aspire to, and that is the kind of hope of supremacy, some sort of North Star that you can point yourself to. And that North Star is literally, in this case, Christminster, figuratively Christ and uh, God himself. I'm just going to read that sentence again because it really made me laugh. But nobody did come because nobody does. And under the crushing recognition of his gigantic error, Jude continued to wish himself out of the world. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't mean to laugh at poor Jude, but I mean, my goodness, boy, buck up a little bit here. Come on, it's not as bad as all that. Look, I know, I know, Jude, he's miserable. He's so sad. And he's such a little wretch, isn't he? But my goodness, Jude, you you, you asked for and essentially prayed for the tools for your own ascension from this terrible life that you're living. You were given these tools. And you're like, I bet I but I didn't I didn't realize I'd have to memorize shit. Yeah, Jude, you gotta memorize some shit. So that's the end of chapter four, with Jude wishing himself out of the world onto chapter five, or as Thomas Hardy called it, chapter cinco. Because one thing I haven't mentioned is that Thomas Hardy is in an is an Argentinian writer. He's from Argentina, and this was originally written in Spanish. That's not true. Chapter five. During the three or four succeeding years, a quaint and singular vehicle might have been discerned moving along the lanes and byroads near Mary Green, driven in a quaint and singular way. In the course of a month or two after the receipt of the books, June had grown callous to this shabby trick played him by the dead languages. In fact, his disappointment at the nature of those tongues had, after a while, been the means of still further glorifying the erudition of Christminster. To acquire languages, departed or living, in spite of such obstinacies as he now knew them inherently to possess, was a Herculean performance which gradually led him on to a greater interest in it than in the presupposed patent process. The mountain weight of material under which the ideas lay in those dusty volumes called uh, in those dusty volumes called the classics peaked him into a dogged mouse-like subtlety of attempt to move it piecemeal. I guess what they're getting at here is Jude is going He's so enamored with this idea. He can't quite let it go. And so he's trying to figure it out piecemeal, right? A mouse-like subtlety of attempt. He's just doing a tiny bit at a time. Let's see what he's doing. He had endeavored to make his presence tolerable to his crusty maiden aunt by... (laughs) Crusty maiden aunt. By assisting her to the best of his ability. And the business of the little cottage bakery had grown in consequence. An aged horse with a hanging head had been purchased for eight pounds at a sale. A creaking cart with a whitey-brown tilt obtained for a few pounds more. And in this turnout, it became Jude's business thrice a week to carry loaves of bread to the villagers and solitary cotters immediately around Mary Green. It doesn't quite follow to me that he's saying... They're saying the mountain weight of material under which, under which the ideas lay in those dusty volumes called the classics. He's trying to move the mountain weight of material, but he's doing so by working harder at the bakery. That's not what I expected. I expected him to be looking at the books, but he's instead delivering bread. And that is going to move this piecemeal. The singularity aforesaid lay, after all, less in the conveyance itself ah, than in Jude's manner of conducting it along its route. Its interior was the scene of most of Jude's education by private study. As soon, so now we're learning the mystery, as soon as the horse had learnt the road and the houses at which he was to pause a while, 
The boy, seated in front, would slip the reins over his arm, ingeniously fix open, by means of a strap attached to the tilt, the volume he was reading, spread the dictionary on his knees, and plunge into the simpler passages from Caesar, Virgil, or Horace, as the case might be, in his purblind stumbling way, and with an expenditure of labor that would have made a tender-hearted pedagogue shed tears. Yet somehow, getting at the meaning of what he read, in divining rather than beholding the spirit of the original, which often to his mind was something else than that which he was taught to look for. So he's going along this bread route and he's and he's reading the books and he's figuring it out, just like it said. The only copies he had been able to lay hands on were old Delphin editions because they were superseded and therefore cheap. But bad for idle schoolboys, it did so happen that they were passably good for him. The hampered and lonely itinerant conscientiously covered up the marginal readings and used them merely on points of construction as he would have used a comrade or tutor who should have happened to be passing by. And though Jude may have had little chance of becoming a scholar by these rough and ready means, he was in the way of getting into the groove he wished to follow. I mean, a word here about Jude. So a, m- a minute ago, he was ready to end his own life. He just, he didn't want to be part of the world. But then over time, in a period of three or four years, he decides, you know what? Fuck that noise. I am going to figure this shit out. And so he gets this bread root from his aunt, crusty maiden aunt, and he starts applying himself. And if this were an American story. This plays so beautifully into the American myth of the self-made man, doesn't it? It's kind of like, if this were an American story, we know this dude's going to end up being president of the United States. Like, we know this dude's going to end up running a company, or he's going to be doing something fantastic. But this isn't an American story. (laughs) And I suspect... I suspect that uh, Jude's troubles are only going to compound, right? He's going to get a little knowledge or something, and things are just going to get bad for Jude. Like, in a sense, like, I don't know. I've said it repeatedly. I've never read Jude the Obscure. I don't know what's going to happen to Jude. But I, I, I suspect that he's not going to grow any less obscure than he once was. And perhaps the moral of this story will be, do not seek knowledge because it will only betray you in the end. And there's something to that. There is something to the idea of ignorance being bliss, which is, so, I mean, just so attractive to me. The idea of just staying an idiot about all things just seems so great, doesn't it? The idea like if you just didn't have the curiosity you inherently possess, that chatter in your brain would cease. And don't we all have that chatter, just that incessant noise in our heads that is just keeping us too busy mentally for our own good? If we were just foolish enough that chatter would maybe cease and we wouldn't always be looking for that thing, whatever that thing is, whatever that knowledge is that we're seeking to acquire and which remains always just out of reach. Because as soon as you learn something new, the only thing that happens is you realize how much further you have 
you, you have to go to have even a passing acquaintance with the thing. And the world has gotten so complicated and, and everything in it so unknowable that there's no chance of learning everything that you want to know in this lifetime. For example, what if you wanted to read the great books, right? My friend Pamela Paul, who I've spoken about before, all she wants in life, and she's she she is a very well-read individual. She is the uh, she's the head of the New York Times Book Review. All she wants is to have read the great works. But there's too many. She can't do it. She knows she can't do it. But she keeps plowing ahead. And on one hand, you go, well, that's really admirable. On the other hand, you go, well, then why? Then what are you doing? You have to read that book. Like, you can't get to the grave. Right. I have read, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I have the delusion that at some point, I'll finish everything that I have to do. Right. At the end of the day, I'll have had that checklist and I'll check everything off. And then I'll be like, I am completely done. Like, right, I'm done. Do anything. <laughs> I'm like, as soon as I'm done, as soon as I've read all of Trollope and all of, you know, and once I've just gone back and finished with that 19th century already, like, and and, and maybe the first half of the 20th, which is also important to my kind of sense of the canon, and, and then I can just go to the movies. Pamela Paul, everybody, and I hope you were properly Pamela appalled. Now, look, listen to me, please. Don't turn off the podcast because I made a pun about Pamela Paul's name. That would be wrong. As a dad, I am legally obligated, contractually obligated to make at least one dad joke per day. And that w- it, it just so happens that as we were recording, that's the one that I had to make. What people don't know is that every day dads get little shipments of suggested material to do either for their coworkers or preferably in front of their children. And it's largely just puns. And today, coincidentally, my suggested material involved Pamela Paul's name. And so I thought, well, this will be the time to do it because happily, I'm discussing Pamela Paul on my Jude the Obscure podcast. I don't know who writes the material, the suggested material for us to use. It comes from Dad HQ, which is a real place in Nebraska. It's a a clearinghouse for dad material. A, A huge employer, by the way. Huge, massive federal program that isn't talked about a lot because it goes under the Department of Defense and it's in one of their black box projects. And so like money just disappears in into the department of dad, dad jokes. And some of it is probably used for no good things, you know, probably some of it's used for weaponry or whatever, but a lot of it does go in fact to providing material for dads. Okay. This is obscure. If you've ever wanted to test your competitive chops on a game show, you should be listening to Dr. Game Show right here on Earwolf. In each episode, hosts Joe Firestone and Manolo Moreno play listener-created games with comedian guests and live call-ins. I know because I called in and it was fun. 
The games are hilarious, creative, and totally unpredictable in a show that the whole family can enjoy. In fact, some of the game creators and players are kids, and you never know what crazy rules they will come up with or what they will say next because, in fact, kids do say the darndest things. Plus, some of your favorite Earwolf hosts have been calling in by surprise, like, oh, Matt Gourley or Lauren Lapkus or Zach Reno, and as I mentioned, your reader your dear reader michael ian black dr game show has also had earwolf hosts as studio guests like chris gethard gilbert godfried and the guys from hello from the magic tavern and if you want to be on the show you can submit your game show ideas to dr game show at gmail.com and follow dr game show on facebook and twitter to know when you can play along live check out new episodes of dr game show every wednesday wherever you listen Okay, hi, I'm back. Uh, it's you and me and Jude, and I'm reading and he's reading and you're listening, which is like reading with your ears. So it's great. Back to the book. While he busied with these ancient pages, which had already been thumbed by hands, possibly in the grave, digging out the thoughts of these minds so remote yet so near, the bony old horse pursued his rounds, and Jude would be aroused from the woes of Dido by the stoppage of his cart and the voice of some old woman crying, Chew today, Baker, and I return this stale one. He was frequently met in the lanes by pedestrians and others without his seeing them, and by degrees the people of the neighborhood began to talk about his method of combining work and play. Such they considered his reading to be, which, though probably convenient enough to himself, was not altogether a safe proceeding for other travelers along the same roads. So essentially, he's, he's got a self-driving car right now. Like, he's got this horse who knows the route. So he's one of these guys who's behind the wheel of his Tesla, and he's watching Harry Potter instead of paying attention to the road, and, you know, something terrible could happen. There were murmurs. Then a private resident of an adjoining place informed the local policeman that the baker's boy should not be allowed to read while driving and insisted that it was the constable's duty to catch him in the act and take him to the police court in Alfredston and get him fined for dangerous practices on the highway. Well, the policeman thereupon lay in wait for Jude and one day accosted him and cautioned him, right? So he let him off. He's like, dude, you can't be watching Harry Potter behind, while you're driving your Tesla because somebody could get hurt. I'm going to let you off with a warning now, but if I catch you doing it again, you're going to go to Alfredston and you're going to get fined and, uh, you know, shit could get bad. So, the, you know, now I have a story in my own stand-up comedy act about getting arrested. <laughs> they put me in... The paddy wagon, right? They put me in the van. It's a van. They put me in the van. And there's other cops in there, you know, like guard me or whatever. And what's really surprised me about it was how nice they were. Because you think like NYPD, like they're just going to be cocks. And they weren't. They were super nice and like chatty. And they didn't know who I was or anything like that. They, they, they asked me questions. They answered my questions. And I couldn't figure it out. Then like half an hour into the process, I realized, I'm like, oh, this is white privilege. <laughs> 
As Jude had to get up at three o'clock in the morning to heat the oven and mix and set in the bread that he distributed later in the day, he was obliged to go to bed at night immediately after laying the sponge. I assume that means taking a bath. So that if he could not read his classics on the highways, he could hardly study at all. The only thing to be done was therefore to keep a sharp eye ahead and around him as well as he could in the circumstances and slip away his books as soon as anybody loomed in the distance, the policeman in particular. To do that official justice, he did not put himself much in the way of Jude's bread cart, considering that in such a lonely district, the chief danger was to Jude himself. Uh, and often on seeing the white tilt over the hedges, he would move in another direction. On a day when Fowley was getting quite advanced, being now about 16, and had been stumbling through the Carmen Seculare on his way home, he found himself to be passing over the high edge of the plateau by the brown house. The light had changed. You remember the brown house? That's where he goes to look at Christminster. That's where he first saw Christminster in the distance was at the brown house. The light had changed, and it was the sense of this which had caused him to look up. The sun was going down, and the full moon was rising simultaneously behind the woods in the opposite corner. His mind had become so impregnated with the poem that, in a moment of the same impulsive emotion which years before had caused him to kneel on the ladder, he stopped the horse, alighted, and glancing round to see that nobody was in sight, knelt down on the roadside bank with open book. He turned first to the shiny goddess who seemed to look so softly and critically at his doings. I assume the shiny goddess is the sun. Then to the disappearing luminary on the other hand as he began. And now uh, there's a Latin phrase which I, uh, I will no doubt mangle. Phoebe silverumke potens Diana. So we mentioned, I mentioned Harry Potter before, and now it sounds like he himself is reading Harry Potter and he's doing the expala, expala, expalarum spell or something. Expaliamus. The horse stood still till he had finished the hymn, which Jude repeated under the sway of a polytheistic fancy that he would never have thought of humoring in broad daylight. Reaching home, he mused over his curious superstition, innate or acquired, in doing this, and the strange forgetfulness which had led to such a lapse from common sense and custom in one who wished, next to being a scholar, to be a Christian divine. It had all come of reading heathen words exclusively. The more he thought of it, the more convinced he was of his inconsistency. So in other words, like he's reading ancient Greek and ancient Latin, and uh, he's starting to uh, uh, worship the many gods, the polytheistic frenzy, I guess, he finds himself in. He began to wonder whether he could be reading quite the right books for his object in life. Certainly, there seemed little harmony between this pagan literature and the medieval colleges at Christminster that that ecclesiastical romance in stone. Ultimately, he decided that in his sheer love of reading, he had taken up a wrong emotion for a Christian young man. He had dabbled in Clark's Homer, but he had never yet worked much at the New Testament 
in the Greek, though he possessed a copy obtained by post from a secondhand bookseller. So he hadn't read the New Testament in the Greek, though he possessed a copy obtained by post from a secondhand bookseller. He abandoned the now familiar Ionic for a new dialect and for a long time onward limited his reading almost entirely to the Gospels and Epistles in Greece box text. Moreover, on going into Alfredston one day, he was introduced to patricitic literature by finding at the booksellers some volumes of the fathers which had been left behind by an insolvent clergyman of the neighborhood. As another outcome of this change of groove, he visited on Sundays all the churches within a walk and deciphered the Latin inscriptions on 15th century brasses and tombs. On one of these pilgrimages, he met with a hunchbacked old woman of great intelligence who read everything she could lay her hands on, and she told him more yet of the romantic charms of the city of light and lore. Thither he resolved as firmly as ever to go. And I'll stop there. The chapter does go on. You know, it, it reminds us here that Jude, he, he's got no money. He's got no skills except for his natural stand-up ability. You know, one thing we know about Jude, he's very funny. Just a very, very naturally funny, gifted stand-up performer. And it's a shame that we're in 19th century England in a fictional county created by Thomas Hardy, the Argentinian, because he really would just kill. And he decides that he's going to get into the building trades because he figures, I like medieval stuff because I like churches. And so maybe I could learn to build a church. So there's something cool about Jude. So with that, I will leave the library. I will go to the high school to pick up my my good-for-nothing son and... We suspend the reading of Jude the Obscure until next time. And until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please, please, guys, I'm not asking a lot, but do, do, do me a solid on this. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at, I just, I set up an email where you can talk to us at obscure with michael ian black at gmail.com obscure is produced by jennifer brennan mary shimkin and robin lynn who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by craig wedgren special thanks to everyone at earwolf especially chris bannon colin anderson and the earwolf engineer team of brett morris sam Kiefer, and ryan connor from the wilds of connecticut i'm michael ian black Sometimes people ask us, you know, on Twitter after shows or they they'll come up to me on the street and they'll say, Michael Ian Black, how can I support the show? Maybe they've already bought a mattress. Maybe they've already built a website. Well, it turns out there's a lot you can do. Any one of these helps. First, 
here's an easy one. You can subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and you can leave a review in Apple Podcasts. That's very helpful. Or share an episode on Facebook or Twitter or tell a friend about us. Don't just steal a friend's phone and subscribe them. We do not condone that. If you just subscribed them without their knowledge and they just ended up with a delightful podcast on their phone, we don't we don't condone that. You can follow our show and Earwolf on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or sign up for the newsletter at Earwolf.com. And if you have a few bucks a month for podcasts, use our code to sign up for Stitcher Premium. That way, y'all, we get a little taste. And you'll get our archives, plus a ton of bonus episodes and podcasts. Use the code OBSCURE for a free month. So subscribe, share, or follow, and I will see you at the top of the podcast charts or wherever I am, which is not at the top of the podcast charts. So there it is. Subscribe, share, or follow, and thanks for glistening. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hold on, Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs> <laughs>